0: Welcome to the DEVCOM Games Industry Podcast with your host, Lars Janssen. Welcome to another ep- exciting episode of the DEVCOM Podcast. As part of our DEVCOM 365 approach, we bring you the DEVCOM experience year-round. Today's guest is the wonderful Robin Gray, co-founder of Gray Jones Media, the world's fastest-growing LGBTQ media company. Welcome, Robin. I'm happy to have you here. It's fantastic to be here. Thank you. So to kick things off, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? I mean, you're not only one of the founders of Grey Jones Media, but also founder and editor of the popular gaming magazine, ambassador at Safe in Our World, and so much more. So give us some insights on who you are and what you do and what your path in this industry has been so far.
1: Uh, Yeah, there's quite a lot on my LinkedIn, isn't there? Um, it is, <laughs> <laughs> I think I, I keep adding to it and people it keeps cropping up as like Robin's got a new job and you get all these people thanking you and saying congratulations and stuff and it's like I haven't changed anything I've just added something else into my busy schedule. Um, yeah so I I co-founded Grey Jones Media about two years ago with my business partner Richard Jones hence Grey Jones um and it was an amalgamation of some of the ideas and some of the concepts that he'd been running already and i'd been helping out with and some of the concepts and ideas that i'd been working on so it's kind of a coming together of two sort of creative queer minds and it's resulted in as you say the fastest growing uh lgbt media network in the world and we between us have three Uh, online magazines relating to different parts of the community obviously one of them being gaming uh, which is g-a-y-m-i-n-g which is the world's only lgbtq video game magazine um we also produce tv we also have podcasts we also do live events obviously when there isn't a global pandemic that stops live events from happening um so yeah there's there's a lot there um we also, um, I also, as you say, I'm an ambassador for Safe In Our World. Uh, that is something I'm super proud of. And it's something that is relatively new uh, to me, uh, but is a fantastic, fantastic addition to my CV. Because uh, it's a it's a cause I'm very passionate about is mental health um, across all the work I've done going back uh, decades. Um, but specifically uh, mental health through the sort of medium of video games, I think is really important that I'm a, quite a staunch believer in the games for good uh, sort of mantra. Um, I, I don't particularly believe in this whole sort of fear mongering that comes up every now and again about video games being the, the root of all the ills in the world. Um, I think they far outweigh, um, I think the good of video games and the good, of uh, the, the communities and stuff that get built around it far outweighs um, the negativity that, that is always leveled in their direction. Absolutely, so, yeah,
0: I couldn't agree more <laughs> in, in that sense. I mean, I mean yeah. we're, we're past those, uh, in, in, at least in most of the um, parts of our industry, we're, we're past you know, those discussions about uh, video games being the root of all evil. They still you know pop up every now and then, but I think there's so many great arguments um, that uh, you can now show that uh, it's actually not quite the opposite.
1: I I found it actually fascinating that I think it was three or four months pre-pandemic. So very late in 2019, there was this huge debate going on around loot boxes. And um, I think it was the World Health Organization, actually, before they got occupied by COVID, um, actually declared video games an addiction. And that caused a huge hoo-ha, obviously. Um, Yet a matter of months later, as we first entered into the pandemic, suddenly there are now articles from the similar kind of outlets that were decrying uh, video games that are suddenly out there now going, aren't video games fantastic? They're saving us. They're saving all our mental health. It's uh, like Animal Crossing and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, make your mind up (laughs) because in one breath, you've just blamed them for gambling and all the ills of the world and the reason why teenagers are so violent. And then now all of a sudden they're useful. it's it's they're suddenly the savior of the modern time so yeah i i get a little bit sort of distracted by that but no that i am really proud of being my sort of ambassadorship with safe in our world um we actually to sort of jump ahead slightly we are actually fundraising uh for safe in our world at the moment uh through the sale of the gaming awards t-shirt um we partnered up with a company called square seven here in the UK, um, who are supporters of Safe In Our World as well. And obviously with our gaming awards coming up, which I'll talk about in a sec, um, we produced a t-shirt that people could wear um, to support us and also the proceeds of which benefit Safe In Our World.
0: Great. I mean, I like the initiative. It's a, it's definitely a cause that I'm uh, very close with as well. I mean, uh, I'm part of the, the Embracer group in my uh, daily job, and we have been partnering with them uh, on, on quite a few occasions because we feel that mental health, in the industry uh, is is more and more important, especially in times of like uh, you know a global pandemic, and at mm. the same time in times of uh, you know sometimes heavy crunch in some of the studios. Uh, so it, you you can't do enough for you know staying sane <laughs> mentally and then having some. Um, uh, having a balance to uh, uh, to everything, and I think Sana what sevenna world does is is just amazing, and uh, we've only had positive experience with these with these guys. Uh, so thanks as well for also being an ambassador there.
1: no, no it's it's honestly an absolute pleasure. um and you're right, they're fantastic people. and I think it it just shows the power of when a few good people have a powerful idea um and the ability to execute it um, the difference they can make is, is truly amazing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, be, before we go into, uh, yes. into the, that more, I mean, talk a bit about, uh, you know, the, how you founded, uh, Grey Jones media what the initial drive for this was. And, uh, I can imagine it was probably not easy to get this off the ground. So I'm, I'm curious, like uh, how everything started and it's, what the first experiences <laughs> were.
1: It's, it's still not particularly easy to keep it going either. Um, no, the, my background has always been somewhere around uh, marketing and pr um i've worked for uh, public sector private sector and third sector charity as well all to do with um sort of marketing and pr but i think everything i kept coming back to obviously i am obviously a member of the lgbt community myself um but i've always sort of been interested in supporting the community supporting um people and and celebrating diversity and for me, I just I I think it's it's something that I started getting involved with uh, with Richard, like I say, on one of his projects, our very uh, our oldest title, um, which is called Bare World Magazine. Um, a quick education lesson: um, so the gay community, the queer community, sorry, as a whole, love to apply labels to things. Um, and if you are a gentleman of a larger size, typically with facial hair. Um, then you're called a bear um, congratulations and
0: <laughs> so I guess we, I guess we both qualify <laughs> right <laughs> correct exactly
1: yeah so uh, we launched this magazine uh, he launched this magazine I should say I joined a couple of years later um, and it's a magazine that very much is sort of celebrating the lifestyle and, and really kind of advancing it was one of, actually one of the very earliest advocates of body positivity and sort of celebrating plus-size uh, people and supporting them with knowledge around fashion etc Um, and i started helping out with him just purely on, on a purely interesting as you say i i personally had sort of am part of the bear community so i sort of was always a bit passionate about that anyway but i started out down that path with him supporting him on that and it, it very slowly transitioned from me kind of lending a bit of my own uh, expertise of copywriting and production um, a little bit of graphic design and that suddenly ramped up through the gears through Uh, becoming a deputy editor through then taking that over and then we started to sort of do more work together around tv Um, we produced some quite low-level internet tv content Um, and it just it's just snowballed it really has and I think more and more the opportunity to tell diverse stories and honestly to push back at the kind of mainstream lgbt media um, because I think if anybody knows LGBT media, it it very much focuses on a demographic of, broadly speaking, 18 to 30, usually gym fit, usually male, typically white. Which, okay, that that does occupy the very much the mainstream segment, but it simultaneously ostracizes uh, people over 40, uh, plus size people, females, um, people, who are trans um, people of color people uh, with varying interests that don't fit the I must go to a club and I must rave with my top off kind of uh, mentality? And I and, and that to me was kind of a waste. Um, and not just from the position of being able to share their stories and, and uplift those communities, but also from a business point of view, um, brands of late, certainly over the last three or four years, they've really started to understand diverse marketing more and more. And the idea that five or six years ago, if you wanted to do a typically a gay advert uh, or an advert in the queer press, i could bet you there'd be two white guys probably in a hot tub um advertising a hilton or something and that's it that's that literally they they produce that they do one photo shoot and go great that's our full lgbtq media uh marketing sorted and i think obviously this doesn't it's, it's not even a unique thing to the lgbt media diverse media diverse advertising comes in all shapes and sizes forms colors ages even um and so, for us, by offering these platforms that do speak authentically to, um, like I say, oversized, uh, oversized plus size uh, gay men, uh, we also run one called Queer Forty, which is focusing on um, everybody in the queer community that's over forty. Which basically, when you get to thirty-five, you are dead in the queer community anyway. Um, so that's been nice knowing. I you. guess. I guess I am dead. <laughs> yeah, um, but it's again. This is purely based on on the the way it's seen by the mainstream you you look at pride celebrations these days it literally is 18 to 21 year olds uh sort of dancing around having an absolute whale of a time which is great everyone loves a bit of gen z advertising but equally when you're reading various gay press and there are adverts in there for jaguar uh, Lexus, BMW, Mercedes—you see all these like high-end brands. I nearly fell over that there was a magazine released here the, um, about last year somewhere um, with ad- with advertising for the Belmont Orient Express. A typical reader of that magazine is not going to be interested in going on the Orient Express. They might be a reader of Queer Forty, for example, um, who is more much more sort of in that demographic that'd be interested. Right. And similarly, their sort of um, their economic bracket as well. Like with the greatest love and respect, the typical. 18 to 30-year-old is not going to be in a position to walk out tomorrow and go and buy a new Mercedes. Um, However, readers of our magazine, or people that we're trying to embrace at least, um, economically would be more viable to advertise to. So that's kind of... From a business point of view that's why we're looking at very much what we're calling our sort of niche advertising and niche marketing
0: so since you talked a bit about about business i mean when you got everything started was it more out of a, of a passion and being part of the community yourself that you felt like this is something that would help the community help empower the community or was the the business um already part of the initial reason why you wanted to create this um, I'm, I'm just curious like how this all totally
1: um if we were doing it purely for business reasons, I'd have quit about four years ago. Um, <laughs> so it's not that. <laughs> um, look, I, I I'm not sitting here sort of saying that it's just purely based on my own sort of love and everything. But it's a passion. It's a complete passion project, and it's something that I've been I was curious about maybe sort of six years ago, and now suddenly I find myself at the helm of um like i say like we keep saying the the fastest growing lgbt media network we, we we're tripling our readership almost every month and it's 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 exciting that we're like so, we're suddenly now in the space we are um and yes you're right we obviously with sort of the gaming awards and stuff that's happening yeah we are making money um but i certainly there are much easier ways of producing media and sort of doing what we do if we wanted to make real money um this is most definitely uh, a service first to the community there are so many good quality rich stories uh that we can tell and it's some of the things that we have time to sort of dig into some of the things we actually spend time exploring it's truly an honor to be able to tell those stories um but that even makes it if,
0: even more authentic and e- even more absolutely uh, yeah so.
1: absolutely and and it's it's running any uh lgbt media company is not um is not a way to make millions it really isn't purely and i I can we we can sit and talk about this and get really technical but considering now most websites run on um programmatic advertising so using like google ads and that sort of thing Mm -hmm. um the problem with programmatic advertising in the lgbt community is when Google and others establish their programmatic um, systems, they use a series of keywords basically to gatekeep where those advertising, where that advertising shows up. And if you write a story about drag or your headline says lesbian or anything like that, suddenly you lose that advertising. That advertising just does not appear. There's just no nuanced approach. Um, I think the last I heard a stat was 65% of programmatic advertising is actually blocked across nearly every LGBT website, wow. purely based on the fact that they are just been really lazily set up these uh, keyword blocks without any kind of thought to the stories being told. Um, because they just fear that everything we do is porn. Um, and it's not, obviously. Um, it's every. we're telling genuinely authentic, amazing stories about people in our community that for decades have been looked down upon and ignored and shunned and whatever else, even by our own community. Um, and and we but we don't benefit from the magic of programmatic advertising because um, of these of this, just this keyword blocking sort of laziness. So. Trust me it's not an easy way of making money you have to physically go and get it
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean I know that the industry uh, mostly moved towards uh, programmatic advertising uh, like over the past couple of years so I can only imagine how hard it must be given you know the problems you describe right now to actually you know make some money with that and and get the the, the traffic you need I mean can you talk a bit about uh, the different publications and different events that you have as part of grey Jones media uh, I mean we already talked a bit about uh, gaming magazine I think was the first pop- uh, publication I think that you started with, right? Um, I know, uh,
1: the, 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 the first one we started with was Bare World magazine. Oh, that yeah, right, right. Six uh, the one you years before. ago. Um, and then Queer 40 came next mm. about two and a bit years ago. Gaming's actually a baby. She's only 18 months old. Well, more or less now. Like, yeah, about 18 months old. We June 2019. So I'm trying to do the math really quickly in my head. <laughs> it's about 18 months. Um, no, she's, she's the absolute baby. And she's, I mean, she's flown. Like, she, we're up to 90. Last month, I think we clocked 95,000 readers. Um, and obviously all the associated stuff that goes along with gaming. Um, but yeah, I mean, events wise, that is where, um, sponsorships as opposed to advertising for us is where the majority of income can be derived. Um, there is obviously a strong, um, move of late away from just, from just website display advertising, um, and really moving into an authentic kind of sponsorship space and partnership space. Uh, across the board really so for us we we started um obviously um with Bearworld. we tend not to do events ourselves we tend to support other people's events but we can benefit off the back of that um but gaming was kind of like our first foray into a complete kind of 360 publication um in a sense that we launched a magazine in 2019 we had our first live event, which was Gaming Live in October of 2019, which was a five day event in London, which was wrapped around uh, a partnership work with Soho Radio, um, where actually I got to host two hours a day of live radio, um, all about gaming, uh, which is fantastic. And then alongside that, we organized a load of mini events, um, which ranged from, uh, drag shows which rate which moved on to sort of um, some career stuff to help industry people or people wanting to get into the industry I should say um, We did a nice drinks reception. We did um, some great work with one of the gamer groups actually in London um, And yeah, that that was a really really nice community sort of way of really getting us started um, And we had about 1200 people attend over the course of five days all the little bits all added together, which was great and um, Unfortunately, really, from that point onwards, uh, physical events started to wind down as we got deeper into the pandemic. We had a great series of events planned uh, for the summer of 2020. Um, We were going to be sort of... uh, We were going to be attending basically all major prides in the UK and having a kind of gaming evening that was sort of adjacent to the main pride celebration, a gaming night, um, which was going to be a great little sort of... uh, Opportunity for people to mix a um, little mixers with uh, some gameplay opportunities some sponsor gameplay opportunities We had a two sponsors wrapped onto it um, And uh, a sort of host drag queen and stuff just to have a lovely little uh, alternative pride kind of celebration But we had to sort of wind that back obviously and go online and be- and that's when we launched our digi pride um, Which took us from June through to August? Um, which in hindsight, we should have just done that because it was much easier. But And it got much better results because it was absolutely fantastic. Um, we had a whole program for three months of um, of a, a range of articles. We did um, we had a specially commissioned uh, Dungeons & Dragons one-shot um, that my deputy editor uh, DM'd uh, live on YouTube. I think we did that. Um, and we did... Um, I'm trying to think what else we did. We had a weekly uh stream feature from our partnership with the rainbow arcade twitch team um, they did a weekly streams with us on on various games whether that was games that they chose to play or whether again part of our sponsorship opportunity was whether the sponsors games uh, got sort of put into special streams so they got their sort of moment in the sunlight um but yeah it's it's a way of us embracing it's the problem of doing any physical event is you cut off some of your readership because unless you tightly have your readership in, a lo- in one location, it's very difficult to try and gather everyone. Right. Because we, although we're based in the UK, we're actually read predominantly, well, we're 55% audience is based in the US um, and 30 odd percents in Europe. And then the leftovers are sort of spread around Australia, Asia, South Africa. Um, so trying to sort of do anything that really embraces the whole audience is, is always going to be a bit tricky. But um, in the end, obviously running something as successful at DigiPride um, was a great solution. So much so, we're, we're doing it again this year. Um, I haven't quite, well, this is, okay, this depends when this podcast comes out. I might have announced it by now, we'll find out. But we'll see how things go. Um, if I have announced it, then yes, we've got DigiPride coming this summer. Um, if we haven't announced it, then we've got DigiPride coming this summer. Congratulations, you're the first to find
0: out. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's why you listen to the DEF CON podcast, right? Exactly. Now, Breaking news. <laughs> Breaking news. So um, when we talk about um, the LGBT community uh, and, and video games, what makes this such a good connection? Uh, where's the power in, in that community in particular from your point of view?
1: I think it's it's, it's really interesting. So the, the reason we launched gaming is that queer people have been into video games for a very very long time, and there's such a marry, such a marriage between um, the LGBT community and the video games community. In the sense that, like it or not, we, we, as two communities, they're both kind of um, ostracized uh, for for various reasons. Whether it's being geeky or whether it's being queer, and then you put the two together, and you end up with a geeky queer person. They're suddenly in a really really isolated situation and i think that for us was the power of why we put all things together for gaming but then when you really scratch into it and, and do some research and this is what i was i was actually amazed by there's there's two sort of things that, that immediately sort of spring to mind um i'm just bringing up my notes which have gone away can we cut a second is is, is cutting possible is, this, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. is no, that a no, thing okay no problem because i pressed the wrong button and my linkedin just <laughs> no. you, you weren't looking at this were you and just went away Sorry, uh, no problem at all. Um, I'm normally more prepared. I should have printed this
0: out. Uh, no worries. It's not. The, it's not the first time. <laughs>
1: um, what was I saying? Uh, two stats. We were talking about the stats that you. Were. Yeah, so there, were two, there were two. There I said something like there were two stats that were really interesting. Because I took a breath and I said there's two stats. So I'll start at that point, and I should be able to edit it together. All right sorry i'm used to doing this from your position <laughs> No, no. <laughs> so i've got kind of a brain of when i last breathe <laughs> there are two stats that i find really interesting um two pieces of research so one was done recently by nielsen in the states um, which talks about um, lgbt gamers uh, and in their words why they're an untapped opportunity um obviously we're the the stat that always surprises people about gamers as a whole is actually had the average age being quite old um, but with the LGBT community that the the age for gamers is actually 33 as opposed to 44 um, And they're actually more likely to have a gaming system. So there's 54% um, of LGBT people in the States um, Have a gaming system versus 44% of non LGBT consumers and they actually spend more money on video games as well So they spend $13 a month versus uh, $10 a month um, And other stuff like peripherals and stuff like this, as that sort of thing as well. So as a power queer people do spend more and do play more video games um i think my personal reflection on that is that comes from needing places and spaces to escape to um i think lgbt people certainly as younger people in schools um going back to sort of talking about mental health um the the bullying and stuff is still a a thing that that is rife and People use video games as a way of escaping uh, some of their day-to-day struggles. So they might be being bullied at school. They might have problems in their home life with the parents, or something to do with coming out. And I know anecdotally, there's a few people that have used Animal Crossing, old versions of Animal Crossing. My partner even always says that he used an old version of Animal Crossing as a way of just literally escaping the real world into a digital world of, of where he can be whatever he wanted to be. Um, so many people have used the sims as a way of exploring their sexuality and a way of of seeing how something feels and so really it's It does so much Video games do so much for the queer community and the queer community pay that back literally Like I just said about sort of they, they spend more on games every month. They spend more on peripherals and I think that's really interesting. So for us, that's something that we really wanted to support. But on the, the, the other stat that I mentioned, um, it's more industry-based. But at the, about this time last year, actually, the, the UK, the United Kingdom Interactive Trade Body, um, released their first ever census of the UK games industry. And that revealed that 21% of the UK games industry professionals identify as LGBTQ, which is huge that's a massive figure anecdotal of course it's never proven but the sort of the the given average that people normally go for for our society is somewhere like between 4 and 10% identifying as lgbtq and so for 21% of the industry to identify as lgbtq is is stunning and that's look there's you could probably sort of probe into that a little bit and then consider a uh, maybe some biases in survey and stuff but it was a- it was actually done by the university of sheffield so it, it's been done with scientific rigor so it, it's it's a figure that you can be quite confident to stand by so for me i find that absolutely fascinating as well and, and that really al- although probably a year later um kind of validated why we launched gaming um but in the in the stage before we launched gaming there was at least anecdotal conversations that I was having at the London Games Festival in April of 2019 when we did a small kind of pre-release gathering of, uh, of press that um, somebody I was, I was having a drink with, sort of looking around the room of all these queer people that work in the UK games industry, they even they stopped and sort of said, I forget every time how many of us... us there are in the UK industry. And I sort of, even that to me was an inspiration as to why we do what we do. And it's why with with gaming, we actually made sure that from the get-go that it wasn't just a consumer magazine. It always had an industry section. It had spotlight interviews on people in the industry. Because for me, it's something that's needed celebrating. And if those interviews can help show people who want to get into the industry that they exist queer people exist in the industry then that can only be a good thing for the future of the industry as well
0: yeah i agree i mean i just want to ask the question that you answered before I <laughs> oh, ask, cool. like that you uh, that you have a, a industry focused part of of gaming as well um, and i can I can totally imagine if people read this, you know, if they are a gamer themselves, they think about entering the industry and they they see there are um, people from the community already working in the industry and having success, and it's it's like you know twenty one percent. Even if we're somewhere close, uh, the area is, is massive. You know, like, like it's you said. huge, it's so, ridiculous. Uh, yeah. so, so so obviously, you know, that gives people that might be interested a better feel for like I could be welcome in in this industry. So what is it? in the industry from your point of view that that makes the industry more welcoming and why is it as kind of a follow-up to that why is it so important to when you run a video games company when you hire staff and when you retain staff that you that you're aware of the fact that uh, a lot of your uh, people are uh, part of this community and and uh, how how does it help make better games from your point of view
1: about ten questions there. Yeah, um. I, know. <laughs> <laughs> I just
0: wanted to give you something. To okay, think about cool. While you, while you, great. Talk about I'm just curious about the topic and how you see That's... it. I mean, you have a lot of experience in that space, and uh, um... I always wonder because I, just as a background, I, uh, you know, I was running a, a company on my own in, in Germany for, for quite a while, and uh, one of the key topics I was always most curious about uh, and try to constantly improve on was how to how to build diverse teams mm. and how diverse teams actually contribute to making better games to uh, keeping. People in the company, um, you know, build teams that are just, in the end, more successful, more creative than other teams. And and so every time I get the chance to talk to somebody who's who's already thought about these uh, things in, in in one way or the other, I try to pick their brains to <laughs> figure out, you know, what to learn there.
1: Okay, um I've, I've sort of processed it. No, I've got a, I, ha- I have a catchphrase that I use quite a lot, which is if you have diverse people, if you have a diverse team, they will inherently make diverse games. That's just that's just by design because they're bringing their life experience. They're bringing their view of the world uh, to these games. You have to listen to them like you can't just have sort of a diverse team. Then you carry on regardless with your game that you're trying to make and and ignore them. But I think inherently, if you have a diverse team, you will make a diverse games. And I think the other thing I'm trying to think all the questions you just asked me I, I can help
0: out with, Start <laughs> with again. Like yes. the the importance of yeah, uh, Just having give. a diverse team and uh, you know the the, the kind of um, the difference it makes in the games you mm. you make the difference in uh, you know how you retain people uh, on your team maybe the appeal that uh, you're company has over that was it
1: yeah got it now yeah okay so uh 21 why the question sorry you said was why do why does the industry have such a high number it's because unlike other uh the video games industry obviously because it's quite technical um in terms of coding etc you would assume that would come with the stats that would be sort of typically shared by perhaps another tech company Whereas I think it's an art form. Video games are an art form. They fit under the entertainment banner. And I think inherently then you bring with that the statistics that would follow perhaps with um, a a movie making company or a TV company. And in in that sense, and I'm gonna talk quite generally and I apologize in advance, but if you're working, if you have a team that's full of artists, people that work in PR, marketing, um, writers, those sort of things, inherently you're looking at potentially uh, a group of people that are going to be more diverse than just people that sit coding um and i like i say i i apologize in advance i probably just tired a lot of people with the same brush there but statistically that is true and i think that's something that i looked at quite a lot when we were sort of working on these statistics like i couldn't genuinely i genuinely couldn't believe that 21 percent uh was a figure but when you really start to think about it it's It's the jobs that are on offer. It's the jobs that you're trying to fill. It's also the age. The video game industry is a very young, uh, a very young workforce, typically. And young people probably, he says as a 35 year old, young people, young people typically have a more flexible uh, definition of their gender, for example, or a flexible definition of their sexuality. Even back in the day, um, you were either gay, lesbian, or bi. And that was the end of discussion. Um, whereas now, we've really fleshed out that spectrum um, to be a much more sort of loose and fluid place. And, and people's definitions of themselves aren't in the binary anymore. And I, I really think that if you if you dug into that 21%, the, the vast majority of people that replied actually ticked bi. As one as the option how they identified I think that word by in this sense does quite a lot of heavy lifting so I think it would also include pansexual uh and various other definitions but people who don't necessarily feel completely gay or completely lesbian and, and and somewhere in the middle um that's that's what that figure I think relates predominantly to and and i I do believe it's because of the the relative youthfulness of the workforce and how people, Today, young people today are much more open, much more um, happy to be slightly more fluid with how they define themselves.
0: So if you look at the industry um, as it is right now, I mean, obviously in 2020, we had a lot of uh, discussions about, you know, inappropriate behavior um, yeah. in some companies uh, without mentioning particular names here. But um, if you look at the industry as it is and, and where it's going right now, would you say it is uh, already or on a path to being more inclusive and being more welcoming to uh, the LGBTQ community compared to other industries um, that, that you know?
1: I think the I think the video games industry is typically about five years behind usually other industries. Um, I think that's sort of a fairly assumed fact with these things. Um, Again, I think it's because video games straddle between tech and creative. If you compared with the the creative world, I'd have said that video games are probably behind on diversity and behind on championing Mm -hmm. diversity. But if you can compare it with the tech world, uh the sort of the more hardcore coding sort of life i i I think i think it's well ahead and i'm seeing and as i was was on a panel um i'd say today but obviously that's relative to when people are listening to this but today in my time i I was on a panel with uh one of the an, an up and coming a major sort of company um that was doing their first ever uh pride panel or lgbt in the workplace panel And this is 2021 and they're doing their first ever one and they're not a startup like they've been going for five six seven years and they've they've were absorbed by a huge uh sort of conglomerate company so it's no it's not anything to be sort of i i think that's quite typical I, i remember last year as part of obviously lockdown um everyone was trying to do pride things and i was on five or six panels and I would estimate at least probably 50% of them were the first time that company's done a first, it's their first ever LGBT thing. I know that Sega um, has only just started a pride group. Um, that obviously comes with slightly more cultural complications as opposed to uh, anything else, but it's great to see. Absolutely fantastic. And, and look, it, it, there's no time at like the present. Like, I'm not saying like it's too late, um, but I think given where the state of the world is, um for companies to be only considering this in 2020 or 2021 um, is quite surprising particularly now we're looking at, at other companies particularly video game companies that are starting up specifically to be diverse there are amazing examples of startup uh companies that i know of that specifically um are setting themselves up in a way to deliberately be a diverse studio or a diverse publisher that there's a publisher that we've worked with in the past who have set their stall out to basically be diverse publishers they have rules like you must employ this number of people you must have these kind of protections in place you must have these policies in place um, you must not do crunch etc 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 and only then they'll publish your game um, and I think that's amazing I I agree. I mean, I think that's absolutely fantastic.
0: What does it take for companies that have been around for many years that maybe are taking their first steps into the right direction? But what does it take for those companies to follow suit and at some point get to be not like behind uh, the curve, but rather getting ahead of it and, you know, help drive this industry forward? What are the key drivers for this change from your point of view? What needs to happen?
1: Um, It's kind of central to um to their development i I do think that um, money obviously makes the world go round, and i I think that the success that we saw last year of uh the last of us 2 that was fronted by obviously by a queer female identifying person uh tell me why from don't nod and xbox game studios uh, the first ever game triple a that's been released with a trans protagonist that and has done significantly well i think money's speaks and i think for them i think seeing that the success now of these there's always been a hesitation hasn't there of do we do a diverse game as if that's a bad thing um but they've always sort of looked at it on the sort of financial bottom line and thought do we do actually do do we do this whereas the last couple of games certainly from um, 2020 that's been released that have featured diverse characters have set records they've done horrendously well so i think Financially, there isn't an excuse anymore, but from an organizational point of view, I think something on a national scale, like Yuki have done with their Raise the Game pledge as a way of encouraging the whole industry to sort of get behind it and to hit these targets and to make their pledge. And it, it, it's, basically, it's basically kind of, if you aren't doing this, there's something wrong with you. It's it's a little bit of guilt shaming. I quite like it, um because I think I I I genuinely think that we're going to get to a point. I was speaking about this uh, a while back with someone. I genuinely think there's going to get to a point in the same way that with um, like fair trade food or a kite mark for sort of um, health and safety for kids on toys. I do think we're going to get to a point where. With games, there's potentially going to be a kind of a universal standard of like ethically produced games or something uh, Like a tick system or whatever that I think More and more people are um, People are seeking games that are made ethically And ethically means no crunch, ethically means a diverse team that, that are welcome and feel involved in their workplace It doesn't mean that they're sort of kept until sort of 5am every morning and back in at seven and they don't get any benefits and they have to sort of fit into the binary of of, uh, of gender specific toilets and all this sort of nonsense. And I just, for me, I think we're going to get to a point where that you're going to start to see this, these national policies will start to kick in and people are going to start voting with their wallets.
0: Yeah, I think that's unfortunately sometimes the the thing that really convinces people that uh, that is, is it is necessary. It shouldn't be uh, like that last resort. But ultimately, I guess that's when people start to listen. We had a campaign here in Germany uh, last year. I'm also a board member of the German Video Game mm-hmm. Association, and uh, we had a large diversity campaign that we set up. And uh, similar to what you were describing about the UK, uh, and a lot of people, um, you know, signed this and uh, you know pledged to um, support this. But one thing that always came up, a statement by, um, you know, the the doubters, I would say, the people that weren't so sure whether this is going to to lead somewhere, was uh, something along the lines of like, but we're already doing this, you know, we're already super inclusive, we're very diverse, you know, Uh, why do we even talk about this? Uh, For me, diversity and inclusion, it it should be a given, you know, Why, why do we make this something special? And I've heard this countless times. What would you say to these guys? Why does it matter? And why is it not a given from your point of view?
1: Well, the first thing i'd say is prove it like there's no we're not psychic as as outsiders Mm. of people that aren't employed or aren't part of the company we're not psychic and that's it's what i sort of applaud the raise the game pledge um for is that they are tying this to the next round of their diversity census and and literally if if they're checking in apparently with with the pledge members like have you done this have you done that um and come the next census look the lgbt figure was great but there were a lot of other problems um there were a lot of other diversity sort of markers that were very down on national averages there was um the the poc uh bame figures were low um there was a lot of mental health concern and i think across the board and, and female representation obviously was appalling but the uh, they're literally going to say, right, okay, we've, we've done this for two years. We're going to do a census. And if there's a, an uplift, then we can see there's a change. I, I do think it's stats are important. And I think studying these things, I pledges are great, as you say, and and, and people are right. It's Unless you're backing that up with action, I think that's that's the point where you're going to start to sort of see apathy. And I think apathy is always the, the problem and yeah. either people saying, no, what's the point? Or um we were members but we don't get anything out of it and, and this sort of nonsense and i i think it's i yeah i'd i'd always say prove it like people sort of saying oh we do it anyway it's like we'll talk about it then like yeah. we we've written the, the first one of the first companies we worked with with gaming was mediatonic who when we first obviously back in 2019 were relatively uh sort of an indie company obviously now they've created their little Four guys. Yeah, nobody um, knew four guys at that point. Which, which is which has done it's, it's done okay. It's done modestly well. Um, and uh, <laughs> but um, but yeah, they've they've obviously had an amazing year. But when I spoke to them in 2019, um, they'd been running internal pride events for five or six years. Like every year they'd run, every, every year that existed, um, they ran a pride event. But in 2019, because we started, with we, they, they were the first time. They actually spoke publicly about running this event and I was really shocked by that and they sort of said like, oh, we don't want to appear virtue signaling or we don't want to appear um, like we're sort of um, trying to sort of show off. And I'm like, no, show off. How how do people who are interested in working for you uh, feel? know they can feel comfortable if, if you don't even talk about the good stuff that you do? I find that fascinating. So for me, it's like proving it is just getting out there. Like I say, putting money where your mouth is sponsoring the gaming awards, sponsoring women in games, sponsoring POC play. Like it's, I think, putting some money back into the communities that then support you in terms of making you look good. That really is the kind of for me, it's it's certainly one of the easiest ways of of making those statements.
0: Right. I mean, I, I saw it last year. When uh, a lot was going on in the world in general, Black Lives Matter was a was a big topic. You know that was one of the trigger points for some of our studios to talk more more about their initiatives uh, that uh, they were running for for many years already. Absolutely. Um, and uh, I, I can really see the difference. You know now on, on LinkedIn or other platforms, they talk more about what they do, and it ultimately makes it a much more interesting employment opportunity for a lot of people that want to get in the industry. If they look at it and they have one studio where, you know, nobody talks yeah. about it, and there's another studio that uh, really cherishes the, the on yeah. the team, you know, then it's uh, usually a relatively easy choice, right?
1: Absolutely. People, and, and listen, people are researching this. I, yeah. I know somebody, a best friend of mine, who's um, a year and a bit now out of uh, university and, and he's still uh, job hunting. Thank you, Covid, um, in the sort of video game world as an artist. Um, he researches every single company and goes to the website. And my God, if if you're bored, is five old white men it doesn't bode well um and i think people people are voting as you say people are people are being selective about where they want to work if people have the right to work obviously in w- without fear of discrimination and i think to prove that it's always tricky because the video game industry obviously has a history um and i think it, it's up to the companies to prove to prove themselves wrong and and to prove to prove the doubters wrong i should say and, and by doing that yeah you've got to be out there you've got to be talking about it it's all well and good like come and work on the next big AAA game great but am, am i going to be surrounded by sort of white men that are going to be on the beer on the friday afternoon playing pool or something or is there other stuff that might interest me as well i'm not saying that having a beer on a friday afternoon and playing pool is a bad thing but the kind of lad culture um that that sort of seems to echo a little bit around the industry is is always is always tricky so as someone that's sort of trying to get into it it, visiting websites it seems really stupid but just put some posts on your website that says like oh we had a pride thing we did a we we did a black lives matter thing um make sure the photography on your website is clearly showing groups of people that really do reflect the type of people that you want to recruit like don't don't sort of have your, your your studio sort of represented by the same group of five white people it's you're not doing yourself any favors particularly if you are striving to have a more diverse workforce and the other thing as well is is change where you're advertising like really trying to change where you're advertising for your jobs because recruitment starts before you actually put the job description out like you need to be thinking about where you're getting these people from it's it's you can't complain about having an, a lack of uh, a lack of diversity in the industry if you're only advertising with the one recruiter and you're saying, "Oh, well, you must have twenty years in the industry," even though we want someone fresh out of university and all this sort of stuff. And uh, and then and then wonder why five white people apply. It's yeah. like you got, you've got to reach into these groups. We exist. I as well as everything else I do. I obviously I, I co-founded um, Outmaking Games, which is a UK. Um, representation group for industry professionals. Um, obviously with gaming, with industry gaming launching, I'm gonna say on Friday, but again, please take this relative to how you're listening to this podcast. <laughs> it's probably launched already to be honest with you. But yeah, industry gaming with a job board. Um, companies should be talking to people authentically, reaching out and recruiting people authentically. And groups and, and, and uh, media companies like ours exist for that for one of certainly for one of those reasons um use us come and talk to us come and help let's let's share your stories let's share your success and and show that you're living your diversity pledge
0: and, and I guess you build a profile over time. You know, it might not be the right timing for some uh, people to come on board uh, at this point. But then later on, when they're looking for something, you you, you might miss out on you know, like one of the best talents out there, and um, because you haven't reached them, you haven't built a profile that people actually recognize you as a company that uh, lives up to the pledge. <laughs> they they might have made absolutely.
1: The, and it's not. It's certainly not flicking a switch overnight. There's. You you can't just be a diverse company. Um, as you say, it's going to take maybe two or three years to sort of flush through. But. Certainly laying that groundwork, making those changes, um, doing something as simple as having people put their pronouns into their email signature. That's the easiest way of showing that you're a diverse company. Um, just by sort of embracing the fact that you're helping people understand pronoun usage. Do that. It's, the, it's the, one of the easiest things. You can you could instigate it in about an hour around the whole studio. Right. And then suddenly you're sending emails out uh, to potential people that you want to work with people that you want to impress and they'll go oh they're using their pronouns that must mean they understand um pronoun use the trans community uh, gender identification all those sort of things they're obviously a diverse company that's a really simple way of just starting on this journey
0: i think that's that's some really good hands-on advice for for companies that are thinking about it uh, to to do more in that regard uh, i think you know mentioned two or three years maybe to go through the full process i'm a little concerned that for some of the longer more established companies with the with the board consisting of old white men oh you yeah know, that's, it that's, might take that's, longer than, that's not going to be two, two or three years, two no. three years. i mean uh, there's going to uh, need to be a bit of death in that one i'm afraid <laughs> yeah, that's that's the the one thing that uh, sometimes um you know i feel needs to happen even though it sounds a little uh, you know morbid maybe but some of those people need to pass away one, <laughs> one way or the other uh, or retire it, it, or, let's or, go for retire yeah, that's yeah, probably the nicer way re- Retire, that, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, to retire, uh, to to make way for a different approach. Because I, I think if there's one thing we learned uh, over the past couple of years, you have to take this series and you have to make an effort uh, to get to that point. Yeah. If you think like, uh, you know, you appoint a, you know, diversity and inclusion coordinator or something and that's going to solve your issues, uh, that that's probably not going to work. It, it yeah. might be a good step. But it's not, you know, the the, it's, the yeah. thing that helps you get to um, uh, to be a more inclusive company.
1: Absolutely, you you, you hit the nail on the head. It, it's it's all well and good having middle management appointed to take care of this sort of thing. It's all well and good in, encouraging employee representation groups to start at the grassroots, but un, there will always be a ceiling of i that the idea will hit, and if that ceiling's still there, it won't really go company wide that any kind of diversity change has to start from the top and come down. It's got to be something that's embraced um, by the sort of the the top executive level. Ideally, obviously, companies should be run by a diverse group of people. Um, that, as you say, that we could do with some retirements of the uh, the old crusty white people and, and sort of make sure they're replacing them with good sort of uh, diverse up-and-coming uh, executive talent. However... Uh, in the meantime, we'll just settle for being open to these ideas. Um, yeah, I think that's
0: a, that's a good point. I mean, for starters, I, I think it would already be nice if we have some of the, you know, slightly older white men to realize the potential that uh, that lies in there. I mean, in my previous role, um, when I was the CEO of a company in Germany, I, I was in, the, uh, in that um, position that I could help reshape the organization. And uh, so if people ask me, well, what are the things that uh, worked you know, best during your time there, I would say uh, the thing that I'm most proud of is actually that we uh, managed to uh, transform the company into a way more diverse environment than it used Mm. to be uh, when I started this. So in the end, we had like, I don't know, about 30 nationalities uh, compared to maybe like three or four different ones when this all started uh, many years earlier. Uh, We had, even though that's not enough, but we had at least about uh, 30% of the workforce that um, identify themselves as, as females uh, um, or not you know, part of the traditional yeah. white uh, men group that uh, they were talking about. And, and that was a lot of progress already. And it could only work, and I couldn't agree more with what you said before, because I, as a CEO, was driving this. You know, mm-hmm. I was supporting it and, it, and it mattered to me. I wanted to yeah. make sure that uh, this is something that we take seriously, that uh, when we start talking to people um, before they apply, uh, that they know what kind of company are we, and did we do everything perfectly not at all you know we made so many mistakes along the way but i think there's more and more groups like uh, like uh the group that uh, that you're representing that you can talk to and get help and uh you know understand better what it actually takes uh, to Absolutely. transform a company and, and be more open and more inclusive
1: and i think being honest and asking questions is, is always important and i think for me it's like Obviously, there's two sides of it, isn't there? There's creating diverse companies, and there's creating diverse games. And like I said before, if you have a diverse mm. company, you will make diverse games. But and it's very difficult for as a non-diverse company to try and make a diverse game because that's where that's where cyberpunk happens. Um, and uh, <laughs> and the um, what was I saying? No, um, if you take uh don't nod as a good example they're an incredibly great company and they make beautifully diverse games obviously the, the latest one being tell me why and that like i said like i said a while ago is the first game the first AAA that has a trans protagonist they did so much research for that game um as part of the devcom call for change summit that i will be hosting have hosted depending which way we look at it on this podcast um probably have hosted <laughs> i think have i think yeah. have hosted i, I hosted yeah. it uh, although i haven't yet the um i spoke I, I got to speak to the wonderful florent uh from uh from don't nod we'd previously through gaming spoken to uh don't nod and xbox um about the game they actually reached out to us actually because of our because they knew what the game was going to be and how it was going to come together and i was genuinely amazed at the depth of research they went into as soon as they realized the territory they were going to get into because what was lovely they didn't actually set the game up as being like this is going to be the trans game um this was a great story they wanted to tell they started off with them just being twins and it kind of got to the writing point where it almost the character told them they were trans. And I think that was a, a, a perfect way of doing it. Uh but B, from that point onwards they they got Glad in from America. They got uh they they used freely admitted to the fact they worked with their own internal LGBT people um to talk about uh to really explore Um, the character to make sure they're getting that right they they cast and they worked with a fantastic actor August um, who is himself trans and so he had quite a strong hand in the creation of the character as well so really I think the second they realized what they were doing that they were not shy in getting out there and engaging with all the groups all the people their own staff uh, to really make sure they're capturing the most authentic portrayal Uh, they could and and that's amazing that's exactly what you should do and people exist these people we exist everybody exists to help like we're not here as the media certainly I'm not here to bash anyone I'm not here to deliberately try and trip anyone up like if people ask for help I will more than happily either spend time with them myself or more likely push them off to uh, much more experienced people than I
0: and as we learned earlier, you're not in there to make money. So <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I a mean, moment. look, yeah, a little bit. <laughs> Little it's fun. <laughs> All right, since you talked a bit about um, you know great games, uh, diverse games, um, let's talk a bit about the gaming awards um, mm. that uh, are coming up or have happened. <laughs> uh, I guess. Have I, happened I think. Again. I think again, have happened. <laughs> yeah,
1: because yeah. that's in two days' time. So unless you're going to be really quick with the edit, it's we, definitely we, have we could
0: be. You know, but uh, <laughs> let's assume you know this is after the gaming awards have happened. Yeah. So uh, what can we expect, or what could we have expected? <laughs>
1: well i can tell you who might win and who has won um <laughs> we uh, i mean so we've got 50 nominees across nine categories um this was a passion of mine from the very get-go the fact that and i i'm probably going to insult an awful lot of people here so i apologize in advance um but most video game awards kind of feel the same to me and they kind of feel the same because they're kind of talking about the same handful of games um it's like the oscars it's like um, the entertain that sort of the movie side of things the tv side of things they're all broadly the same and so for anyone kind of seeking queer diversity uh, being celebrated is you might get chucked a bone by some companies as kind of having a maybe a diversity prize or or something like that and, and it's okay fine whatever so when we created the gaming awards it was set out not just to celebrate this is a good game but we wanted to celebrate uh authentic representation we wanted to celebrate good characters we wanted to celebrate indie games that's a very that's a huge passion of mine streamers as well that's a huge passion of mine there's so many different facets to to what is uh what makes a queer game and to me that's something that we like n- with nine categories. Um, we really wanted to make sure that we're sort of rewarding people and yeah, so, um, we got a fantastic, obviously this was meant to be in a theater in central London that didn't happen. Uh, so now we turned it into an online broadcast, but we've got a fantastic host, a uh, wonderful stand-up comedian, Susie Ruffle. Um, it has, will have might air on twitch.tv slash gaming mag. Uh, it aired on the 24th of February, which is in two days time. And, um, know it's it's an hour and a half broadcast it's absolutely fantastic we've got some amazing winners um don't release this before wednesday but tell me why would have taken have taken home two awards uh if found uh which is a fantastic fantastic indie game uh took home two awards hades took home uh game of the year and readers magazine uh, gaming magazine readers award um, so that's public vote and judges vote for game of the year mm-hmm. basically, uh, was for Hades, which is an amazing game. Uh, it's an absolute it a... fantastic game with uh, a real embrace of kind of what the Greek, the, the real kind of original Greek definitions of love are, unsort of fettered by the more sort of conservative modern standards. Um, so chucking in a, a ton of queer content was amazing um but obviously tell me why i've talked about if found was fantastic um and and then other sort of we, we celebrated obviously the, the industry diversity award um which was a celebration of organizations in the industry that are doing good stuff uh with diversity um and that go and that went to I, a, an american group called i need diverse games uh which is run by the amazing tanya De pass um we gave our first gaming icon award, uh, which is to someone who, uh, not just in twenty twenty, obviously this was a has done work over years uh, with queer games, uh, and that went to the the wonderful Robert Yang, um, who's basically kind of created a whole definition of gay games himself um, throughout his work, um, very much exploring uh, sort of gay intimacy in games um, which is fantastic um, i feel like i've missed one two four six eight i've definitely missed someone oh the streamer of the year was dia uh, it's a fantastic fantastic drag streamer uh based in america we had Hundreds of people nominated uh, for the for the streamers award but streaming I always found like I say a huge passion for it But only really developed it over the past 18 months to be honest with you um, I was of the brigade where I could never quite understand the joy of sitting and watching somebody else play a video game uh, I didn't never quite got that and then I started to I watched a couple of broadcasts as part of the research when we we're st- when we were setting up gaming and i suddenly realized that actually what i'm looking at is a is a community it's a digital community the game they were playing was nearly irrelevant it was actually what was taking place in the okay. chat it was taking place what was on it was what was taking place on screen and then digging further into it I'm, I, I obviously now work with a fantastic streamer uh, mia uh, who's my co-host on the gaming podcast but we sort of the the more I look into it, and the more I looked into it, the more I realised that in lieu of access to queer spaces, what these fantastic people are doing is they're they're supporting and offering safe spaces to queer people, not just in their own neighbourhood, but also from around the world, like people from Russia, people from uh, conservative families in the US, people from uh even iraq iran asia the places that you don't be gay um and it's it's fantastic like really amazingly inspiring that they're actually managing to gather people together there's people that stream specifically with a sort of focus on mental health as well like again the game is a usually quite a chill game like animal crossing and that he's been known another streamer i know has been known to sort of pause the game if somebody comes into the chat and they sort of say i've had a bit of a bad day he'll pause the game and the whole chat and him will just have a conversation with that person i just find that amazing so for me that's why we sort of i definitely wanted to make sure we had um a streamer's category in there because although it, it's it's difficult to sort of say this person is the best because that kind of poops on other people but it's is an opportunity to at least acknowledge 14 fantastic people as voted for by the the viewing public um but yeah it, it the, the awards as a whole um if you haven't seen them <laughs> then uh, I haven't seen them either no but if you haven't seen them uh, please go to twitch.tv gaming mag uh there'll be a broadcast to to watch back um you can go to our youtube um which will have kind of cut down highlights um or you can check out gamingawards.com which is g-a-y-m-i-n-g awards.com which has all the sort of runners and riders and nominees and stuff as well um and also just a really quick shout out and i apologize for sort of hijacking the podcast slightly but just just a, a really quick shout out to all of our sponsors like this is what we we're just talking about in terms of putting money where your mouth is and, and really displaying putting on to dis- display your company's uh diversity creden- diversity credentials um to be um to be on display as, as part of this history making kind of moment the world's first lgbt video game awards um we had a presenting partner with ea games obviously we were exclusively broadcasting on twitch um, and then category sponsors um, that I won't sit and just list off um, But all of them absolutely fantastic sort of I mean, and I apparently am reliably informed That it's very rare to try and get Xbox and PlayStation to sponsor the same event <laughs> um, and I so I agree, I feel quite honored actually that I've made, I've been able to pull that one off um, but again, that's just Some people will look at it and go. Oh, they're just virtue signaling. And it's like fine You know what if they are so be it but at least they're doing something they're putting a, they're putting the money where their mouth is, but B, they're putting themselves out there alongside, right. um, particularly PlayStation, obviously, being a Japanese company, um, and, and the sort of cultural uh, sort of roadblocks that sometimes exist there. It's absolutely fantastic to sort of see everybody really step up and, and offer their support to us um, to do this. And it's something that we're already in the process of getting 2022, uh, shaped up hopefully in person again um but it, it would definitely with a co-stream sort of thing on for a hybrid sort of model but no it, it's it's definitely something we're, we're super excited about it. and i i'm continually sort of honored that i'm able to sort of uh, drive this forward
0: I mean, we've seen something similar for uh, the Call for Change Summit uh, that uh, will have happened <laughs> <you> know, in, <laughs> in two days from now. Um, uh, there's a, there's a lot of engagement when we talk about uh, talk to sponsors about it, uh, and uh, you know that gives me hope that uh, yeah. you know we're we're moving forward in the right direction. I mean, you're going to be part of that event, so if you give a shout out to the sponsors for the Gaming Awards, I also need to give a shout out to the people supporting this. Please uh, do. I mean, we wanted to, to put it together for uh, and, and t- we had to do it in a relatively short amount of time. Uh, we last year weren't expecting the pandemic, uh, pandemic to still be going on uh, the way it is right now so we're hoping to be able to do this in person but we're really looking forward uh, to this event and by the time you listen to this podcast uh, you know I'm sure it will have concluded as a, as a very nice uh, event for, for everybody uh, and really promoting uh, the need for changing the industry so we can hopefully catch up with other industries uh, that uh, you think are maybe a little bit further ahead. But what, I,
1: what I really like about the, the summit and um was it was starting to sort of drive forward action. I think the, the thing that I've sort of noticed certainly over the last uh, couple of years that I've been doing similar things, uh, sort of sitting and talking on a microphone is, and this is, this is like I say, this is no, no shade on the companies that I've worked with over the past year or so for sitting on their pride panels, but there's only so many times we can talk about how do we get better LGBT representation in games? How do we do this? It's the same answers. Um, I've I've told you the same sort of things. I've I've told other people, and it's it's how we we need this next step. We, we've we've done the talking. We spent two years talking about. Uh, we need the industry to mean to be more diverse. We need this to happen. We've got to do this, and what I think I enjoyed most about when um, Nico and Rufina approached me about being involved with the summit was their attitude was like, we want this to be actions. We want people to be able to go and do some of these things. And I think for me, that's kind of how I see 2021, 2022 start to play out, I feel, which is as a, as an industry, we, we've we got to stop talking about, oh, should we do this? Should we do that? Like, I, th- I think we're beyond that now. And I really do think it should be a lot more sort of in-depth conversations about how do we do this? How are we gonna do this? What are we going to do? And I think the, the the Pledge, and like I say, both from Yuki, but also from Game uh, in Germany and, and other ones that I've read about is a start as a way of sort of suggesting ways forward. And I think the Yuki one, they definitely are checking up on their Pledge members. Um, but I think we can start this shift now into learning so people coming like how can we do this and i think successful companies will start to rise up and be able to come out and, and really sort of help guide this conversation and i think that's what certainly what um nika and rufina kind of sold me on with the call for change summit and i'm sure that i'm speaking retroactively to say that i really enjoyed it and it was a really positive experience um because i know what they have got planned for it
0: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was uh, supporting it as well a little bit on the side. And, and I think really think that it's a great program. And um, I couldn't agree more with uh, what you said that, you know, companies by now, they should have committed uh, to making that change. And now it's about how to get there. What needs to be done? What can they do? I mean, you gave uh, you know a couple suggestions already during this podcast, and I'm sure you've done <laughs> more in in in-depth conversations you had with with companies and and how they can uh, you know get ready for that for that change. And I hope that uh, throughout the call for change summit, you know, there will be more uh, of those uh, conversations uh, so that companies know how to approach this uh, and yeah. what kind of you know failures uh they they uh, might have made in the past and how to avoid them going forward how to learn from it and and take it to the next step as you said there's there's one last thing i wanted to uh, cover in 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 this episode uh, and that's a little bit um, about the impact of the pandemic uh, for people from the uh, lgbt community Um, so what did it mean for them um, from, from your point of view? And once the pandemic is, I don't want to say over, because I don't know if it's ever going to be over, but once it's manageable, once we, uh, you know, get some sense of, you know, normality back, How do you think uh, is the lasting impact of this Um, uh, especially uh, for people that right now working from home do not have the the pressure of conformity that uh, can be their authentic selves? What happens once they need to go back into an office? Um, What are your thoughts around that?
1: Taking the first half of that question. um, The impact on the LGBTQ community has been huge obviously of the pandemic part of from a social sense um part of what the lgbt community needs is its queer spaces we are losing them uh we we were losing them quite rapidly pre-pandemic and we've certainly lost a hell of a lot during the pandemic and queer people sometimes struggle internally with their own sort of personal uh, relationship family units the sort of blood relations and the one of the strong points of our community is, is we can make our own family units and we can have our own, what we call our, find, our found families. And so having spaces where we can meet those people is, is vitally important. Relating specifically to work, what you mentioned there was absolutely right, that particularly for people who um, don't necessarily fit into the gender binary, so trans, trans plus, uh, non-binary people. Anybody that in that space or anybody in that community um, on a daily basis will feel that certain type of way and having to conform to sort of industry standards um, is, is always difficult no matter how, how long uh, you've, you've been on that journey. But for people specifically, I think that are just starting out on their journey of, of self-discovery and maybe presented themselves differently uh even a matter of weeks months ago to do that in a space where you're surrounded by three four hundred other people um it's it's bold it's it's and and it's difficult and it's tricky and you are probably editing yourself and holding yourself back and, and not being your authentic self so actually what the pandemic anecdotally some of the people that i know have said is that they're able to relax they're able to chill that people um i don't want to go into too much detail obviously but obviously needing to wear certain things like chest binders or or whatever that would normally be needed to sort of step out in public they can relax they don't need to worry about that and and they can be their authentic selves at home and explore their identity explore their genders and i think that's amazing And, and i the ability to keep embracing that will be the challenge as as we as you like as you say as we as we exit from this in some kind of state um i do feel that the work from home shift has been such a a change to the working patterns not just for trans people not just for lgbt people to be honest with you but for the whole world i i think anybody that has hated working from home um I think they've been the minority. I think a lot of people have enjoyed the work-life balance more. I think people have enjoyed more family time, more flexibility to go and do certain stuff. Um, and I think it's, um, I think it's something that we we need to look at how we can embrace that coming back into the world of of office working um, because. Obviously, the video game industry, it's, it's a creative industry, so you need to be able to meet up with people and, and do creative things in person. But how the challenge is going to be how do we um, keep the values and keep the comfort levels of homeworking and try to bring that back to the workplace. Obviously, there are simple solutions around uh, gender-neutral toilets um, and just sort of almost a don't ask, don't tell when it comes to whatever it is you're, you're sort of journeying on unless they want to present that information to you. Um, but it's difficult, isn't it? When you have an office, even just have a group of 300 people, if you are going through any type of personal change, there's a lot of natural questions that might be coming up. And so how do we... And this is not something I'm going to sit here and answer, so please don't expect an answer to come, <laughs> to come out of my mouth. How, how, I was hoping for <laughs> it. <laughs> uh, yeah. How, how do we sort of transition back into the, the sort of workspace? I honestly think, okay, I'm going to give you a sort of an answer. I honestly think that there should be kind of space for and flexibility for somebody to approach their manager to say, I'm going to need to work from home for the next couple of weeks. I'm going through some things, I'm having some mental health or whatever. But of course, transitions don't take two weeks. They take years. Yeah. So it's, that's not that's not really, having said it's a solution, that's not really a big solution. But I think the flexibility of, of working from home is something that needs to stay. We should not be dragging everybody back into the office full-time nine to five. That's just not a thing anymore. I think we've proven. I think most studios, honestly, I I, I haven't heard of any major studio that has... That his entire workflow has completely fell over. I just don't yeah. think that's happened.
0: Um, I mean, they all—they all maybe had some issues adjusting initially, but totally, they they, absolutely. they get used to it. And yeah. uh, a lot of—I mean, I would actually—you um, know—pretty um, much resemble what you said earlier. That most of the people that I've talked to, uh, they either uh, enjoy working from home completely, or at least want to have it as part of their uh, daily life going forward, even after a pandemic. Uh, and unfortunately, it took a pandemic to get us here but uh since I mean, and I guess nobody wanted this, right <laughs> but uh, since uh, s- since we have it, it's kind of a I think a positive side effect that we finally start thinking about this and that we've taken for granted before uh, We now use it to, uh, you know, really figure out how do we want to take this into the future? How is work life going to look like? Yeah. So the last thing I wanted to, uh, to to ask you about this is do you think that especially the LGBTQ community benefited more from this than the general public in terms of working from home um and do you think it's going to continue that way if if you say yes they did
1: i it's tricky to sort of answer that so a community benefited from a global pandemic but um well let me specific- say Bennett, Bennett, <laughs> that, that, <laughs> sounds, that sounds straight specifically
0: yeah. in terms of like being yes. able to work from home obviously. absolutely
1: yeah. no absolutely and and i but i i would also add into that that we're not alone i think you can single parents, you can say, probably benefited from it because they're able to spend more time with their kids, people with uh, aged relatives that maybe are sort of um, having health issues or people with health issues, people with disabilities. But I think a lot of people, honestly, like I say, I I will echo the thing that I said before. I would struggle, and please, if you have um, the opposite opinion, tweet me or email me. I would struggle to sort of say that anybody could hand on heart say they hate working from home full-time I, I fully accept that for working from home full-time seven days five days a week jesus you can tell what i do five days a week um is is uh, obviously we all get stressed but i think nobody could honestly sit there and say i hate working from home even for like a day a week i, I really do think that we're going to transition back into a space and i really hope we do we transition back into a more flexible workforce that genuinely is splitting their time. I mean, and and again, anecdotally working with some of the people that I work with one of our big sponsors, actually, I I won't name them, but, um, they've, or if they haven't already, they're giving up the rent on their big central Mm -hmm. London studio where everybody had a desk, um, because everyone's just working from home so well, they have, Accept the fact that creative work still has to happen teamwork still has to take place And so they're currently I believe looking for replacement space in central London still but that will be more kind of uh, flexi Creative sort of shared space as opposed to everyone has a desk. That they must come into and sit down at at 9 a.m um, Whereas I think now it's a case that in, in their view particularly um, if you're doing work from home if you if you're doing some solo work then by all means stay at home, have a great ha- have a great time, not commuting. Um, but if you need to come in and be creative with a team, great, come in, be creative. Then go home, and I think that's kind of what we're going to get to. And I'd be surprised if I'd be surprised if any company tries to make their workforce come back full time. And I think if any company does try to make their workforce come back full time, they might get a nasty surprise because people are going to start voting with their feet.
0: It's not going to work in the long run. The way I see this, actually, it. Uh, Know uh, being flexible, uh, offering flexibility to uh, the people on your team, increases loyalty in the long run. Uh, so you know, yeah, it's, totally. it's getting yeah. it's getting so. Uh, the one thing that pandemic has showed us is that is that you know, loyalty is, is an interesting concept because people can more easily switch and go to other companies that provide an environment uh, mm. that uh, they want to be part of. Yeah. At the same time, you know, if you are one of those uh, studios, if you're one of those companies that uh, have this kind of flexibility, then uh, why would you want to leave? Because you can work from wherever Absolutely. you, you want to work for and you feel like you're part of that, that team yeah. uh, no matter where you are. And I think well, that's something that companies uh, are, that are a little more conservative in that sense that they're going to realize one way or the other.
1: Totally. And, and they're going to lose staff as a result of it. Yeah. And that they're, they're going to struggle because if they're not being flexible now, um, people will leave um, because I, I think genuinely it's going to become part of the, the part of the package of employment. Absolutely. Um, I mean, you've only got to look at, I think, Spotify's announcement that came out, again, relatively speaking, a couple of weeks ago um, where they've just now permanently instituted a work from anywhere
0: policy. A um, good friend of mine actually works there and he was recently oh, well, posting, the, posting this yeah. on LinkedIn and he was Absolutely. like this, And I actually commented on this and uh, and said like this is the way to go because I yeah. do believe that uh, the flexibility is what people are looking for. There are certain functions, certain roles, uh, and also certain you know people that enjoy being in the office more, being a- among other people, and then there's others for them. It, it might be like a two-hour commute every single day mm-hmm. or something and they're like, oh, if I can work from home, perfect, you know. Absolutely. So, uh, I think I mean, you got to be flexible there.
1: I'm a people person. I enjoy getting out to events, I enjoy meeting people, but I don't need Need to be around my staff seven days, five days a week. I keep saying seven, that just tells you about my working patterns. Um, five days a week, like a good healthy person. Um, and I, yeah, I, we genuinely sort of in the thought thought process that I'm having. Obviously, we're media rather than games, but it's similar. Is we'd probably have one day in the office or, or a mixed use office um, team meeting one day a week, and then help yourself for the rest of it. I really don't mind where you work from so long as you know what your targets are and, and you hit those targets exactly. and you do that work. And what I thought was quite genius about the Spotify one was they actually had three options that I hadn't th- one of the options I thought was genius and it, it might actually start to see the change in uh flexible working space because it was either in the office or in an office. Obviously you don't have to work in just the office you're assigned to so it could be in any office at home or if you didn't want to work in the main office but you didn't want to work at home they would pay you to, they would pay for uh like a we work or um a yeah. sort of flexible office space um in in your nearest location so if you're living taking london as an example if, if you live out in uh luton or out in the commuter belt if you don't want to slap it on the train for 45 minutes you can just go to your nearest local local town and work and i think that's having i think as as companies like we work and and uh, aura and those sort of people having built a model on providing spaces smack in the city center i think you're going to suddenly start to see those kind of office spaces crop up in in the commuter towns
0: Absolutely, I couldn't agree more, and it's going to be an opportunity for, you know, some of the people that uh, previously rented out like large office buildings yeah. to big corporations because they all don't need the space anymore. I mean, yep. every, pretty much every company is thinking about this right now. So. Absolutely. So, Robin, I want to thank you so much uh, for uh, the great conversation th- that we had. I really enjoyed it a lot. Uh, learned a few things, uh, <laughs> you know. So that uh, it was very interesting uh, to talk to you. I uh, hope we get the chance to, you know, catch up in in a while to see, uh, you know, how things have progressed uh, since then. Um, and uh, hopefully, at that point, you know, in a you know meeting uh, somewhere <laughs> on this globe, uh, <laughs> yes. not only virtual. Um, it was a pleasure uh, hosting you here today, and uh, I'm looking forward to. to like I said, having this again at some point in the future. Thank you so much.
1: No, thank you so much, Lars, for having me. It's been absolutely great. Um, And yeah, I I look forward to sort of catching up when we're not just looking at each other on a screen.
0: (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Thank you again. Thank you for listening to the DevCom Games Industry Podcast presented by devcom.global produced by Sven Vossing. Executive producer Stefan Reichart. Music by weloveindies.com. Supported by Beyerdynamic, high-quality headphones, microphones and conference systems for professional musicians and gamers, made in Germany.